0: Good morning, church. Good to see you today. Good morning to those who are joining us online, live stream. Okay, um, I'm four days into a cold. I sound worse than I feel, so don't feel sorry for me. But you may have to work a little bit harder uh, on your part for the message this morning. It has been said that people like to hear sermons on the book of Revelation because they don't know what it means, and that preachers don't like to preach sermons on the book of Revelation because they don't know what it means. Nevertheless, uh, we're starting a sermon series here this month of May on Revelation, and it's entitled End Game. End Game. Now, we're not going to do a book study. It's Revelation is 22 chapters, and it's very deep. It would take months and months and months. If you want to do more of an in-depth study on Revelation, I've got two commentaries on your bulletin that are recommend. If there's ever a book of the Bible where you need a commentary to help, that's the book. And that's where I can come in, maybe useful, because there's a lot of poor commentaries out there. But The End Time by Russell Boatman and More Than Conquerors by William Hendrickson, those I would definitely recommend. But so all we're really going to do is hit the highlights over the next four weeks as we talk about the end game, God's end game. And Really, I'll even try and pull a little something in for the mothers next week on Mother's Day. But my main theme this morning, my main point is the end game has begun. God's end game has begun. And we are in the end game. You say, why do you say that, Steve? Well, I've got three reasons for saying that. But before I get to those, a couple of introductory matters about Revelation itself. Introductory matter number one. The book of Revelation is cyclical in its structure. It is cyclical in its structure. Revelation 5.1, the scroll was sealed with seven seals. Revelation 8.2, they were given seven trumpets. Revelation 16.1, pour out on the earth the seven bowls containing God's wrath. See a pattern there? (laughs) Seven trumpet seals, bowls. Uh, Revelation is not written in a a straight-line progression from the beginning of time until the end. You've got a prologue in chapters one through three, and you've got those seven letters to the churches from Jesus. Then you've got these three cycles. You, know, you could picture it as a spiral staircase with three levels. You get up to the first level, and you're surrounded by seven paneled windows. You look out over the cityscape. You can see certain things. You walk higher. You get to the second level. You're looking at the same cityscape, but you maybe see a little bit more from a different perspective, and so on with the third level. Well, likewise, in the body of the book of Revelation, there's basically three cycles that are telling the same story. It's the story of the church age, basically, from its beginning to the end. And then in, in chapters 20 through 22, you have the consummation of the ages. It's like a Marvel movie. In the Marvel Cinematic Universe, you've seen one Marvel movie, you've seen the plot line of all of them. They got, they're telling basically the same story. You've got an origin story, you've got a conflict, right? You've got a villain, a hero, you've got the battle, and then the victory. At the end, it's just different, plug it in, in different characters. Same kind. So we got a cyclical, just saying it's cyclical. Second thing has to do with apocalyptic language. Apocalyptic language is symbolic. Revelation is apocalyptic language. Revelation 1, 1, and 3, the revelation of Jesus Christ. i going to read the whole thing. That, book, that word revelation in the original language is apocalypsis. Now we know some Greek, it's apocalypsis. Apo is a prefix, meaning from. Uh, lupsis uh, means to cover. So it's to take the cover from. So apocalyptic language is symbolic. It's supposed to reveal and conceal at the same time. If this book fell into the wrong hands in the first century, there were certain things that would re- remain concealed. And, uh, but certain, and you can reveal it also. As Jesus said, hey, Lord, you've revealed this to the uh, children and kept it from the wise. Well, so there's, a, there's just apocalyptic language by its very nature is symbolic. So it, We need to understand that in our study. And I know you know this already, but there's a lot of prophecy experts out there that try to approach all these symbols in Revelation as if they're literal and it just doesn't work. Now, unless you think Jesus, when he returns, is gonna be riding on a literal horse and he's gonna have the hilt of a sword and his teeth and the angels that come with him are all on literal horses and Satan, who is a spirit being, is gonna be bound with a literal chain and throw into a hole, you gotta allow for some symbolic interpretation. Okay, so having said all that, The end game has begun. Why? Three reasons. Number one, because Satan is bound. Satan is bound. Revelation 20, verses 1 through 3. We'll be doing most of our work this morning in in Revelation 20. John writes, And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. This is the binding of Satan during the millennium. Thousand years is a millennium. What is it? What is this binding of Satan? Number one, it's figurative. We're not talking about a literal chain. Okay, it's figurative. Number two, it's relative. What, what all is included in the binding of Satan? Does that mean Satan can do nothing? Well, we need to let the Bible define that for us. For one thing, Satan has always been bound to a certain degree by God. God is sovereign, he's in control. We have free will, but it's, we have relative free will, relative independence to the degree that God allows us. Same with Satan, he has relative independence. Now think about Job for a minute. In the Old Testament, Satan asked permission from God to test Job, remember? And he tested him in two phases. And in both instances, God restricted what Satan was permitted to do. With the first test, he couldn't touch his body. And with the second test, he couldn't take, take his life. So God let Satan loose, in a way, on Job. He, he let him have a, a little more freedom maybe than he normally would have had, but he was still holding him back. Why? Because God is in control. He's still, he's in, even over Satan. So Satan, that's why I say Satan's always been bound By the sovereignty of God. What does this mean when we say uh, that Satan is bound? Well, if I understand what the Bible teaches, this began during the earthly ministry of Jesus and continues through the gospel age, the age that we live in. For instance, uh, in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus had cast a demon out of a man, as he was wont to do. And the Pharisees couldn't deny a miracle had taken place, but they suggested that Jesus had done this by the power of Satan he'd cast out a demon by the power of Satan Jesus said that doesn't make sense that's when he said a kingdom divided against itself or a family divided against itself cannot stand and he went on to say Matthew 12 29 how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house who's the strong man Satan who's the stronger man Jesus and so Jesus is, he's, he's, he uses this language of binding. Jesus bound Satan with a chain or a rope, spiritual or whatever, and was plundering his house, meaning taking back the people that Satan had taken captive. This already began during the earthly ministry of Jesus, this binding of Satan. Read in Luke, uh, Luke chapter 9, Jesus sent 70 of his disciples out on a preaching tour. And after several days, they came back and this is what they said Luke 10:17 Lord even the demons are subject to us in your name and Jesus said to them I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning behold I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy in Luke 11:20 he says if i cast out demons by the finger of god then the kingdom of god has come upon you the kingdom's already here Jesus put the finger on Satan so to speak to bound him. So I'm saying Satan is bound right now. We're in that thousand-year stretch. We're in the millennium. Satan is bound. You may say, "Yeah, not sure I buy that, Steve." If Satan is bound, how do you explain all the evil, the wickedness, the violence, the corruption in this world? He must have an awful long leash. Well, that's a good question. I, what do you, if you'd asked Job? Would he have said that Satan was bound in his circumstances in life? I doubt it, but he was. Again. We know all the ways that Satan is restricted and bound. We have to let the Bible to, the Bible tell us and determine this. Does the binding of Satan mean that we are protected somehow from misfortune in our lives, from grief, from death, from disease? Obviously not. Obviously not. But we tend to think in terms of of uh, material things and physical things. That's just the way our minds go. The gospel has much more to do with spiritual blessings and spiritual realities. Ephesians 1, 3, you have every spiritual blessing in Christ. That's just as valuable, really. It's more valuable. I shudder to think what this world would be like if Satan were not bound by God and the gospel right now. I mean, would it be like in the days of Noah when every thought and intent of man's mind was only evil all the time? And the world was full of violence, and it was so bad that God had to wipe out mankind and start over. God probably is protecting us from far more than we have ever realized through the binding of Satan in the Gospel, First John five eighteen, and we know that God's children do not make a practice of sinning, for God's Son holds them securely, and the evil one cannot touch them. Isn't that interesting? talking about we Christians, as long as we are in Christ and we're walking in the light and we're not practicing habitual, intentional sin, Satan can't touch us. Does that sound like a binding of Satan, a restriction? On April 7, 2018, a man from New Zealand wound up in bad shape after breaking into the Wellington Zoo to catch a squirrel monkey. John Crawford snuck through the gates at the zoo. He cut through two padlocks to enter the squirrel monkey enclosure. Casford's intention was to steal a monkey for his girlfriend. But he ended up in a physical fight with the small primates instead. The altercation left Casford with a broken leg, two broken teeth, a sprained ankle, multiple bruises, and a prison sentence. At his sentencing, Judge Bill Hastings said, quote, I don't know what happened in the squirrel monkey enclosure. You know, and the monkeys know but I don't speak squirrel monkey. But what I do know is that by daybreak, all the monkeys were distressed and you had suffered a beatdown. Casford admitted that he was high as a kite that night. Kids, that's another reason not to do drugs. You might find yourself at the wrong end of a squirrel monkey beatdown. You know, this guy, John would he wouldn't have had no problem. He would have had no problem if he just stayed out of the squirrel monkey enclosure, right? They're, they're, they're in their enclosure. They're behind the bars. And we're the same way. If we'll just, Satan is, is bound and he's in the abyss. If We stay out of the abyss. But, you know, as long as we're in the light, walking in the light, we don't practice sin. But sometimes we do, don't We practice intentional sin. I've done it. You've done it. We're crawling right down there in the, in the abyss, we're getting in the squirrel monkey cage with the squirrel monkeys, and, and Satan comes at us. But nevertheless, having said that, I'm, all I'm saying is this: I believe we're in the end game because Satan is bound right now. Number two, I think we're in the end game because the first resurrection has occurred. Let's go back to John chapter, uh, Revelation 20 rather, verse four. And then I saw Thrones and the people sitting on them had been given the authority to judge, and I saw the souls souls of those who have been beheaded for their testimony about Jesus and for proclaiming the word of God. They have not worshipped the beast or his statue nor accepted his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They all came to life again and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. This is the first resurrection. The rest of the dead did not come back to life until the thousand years had ended. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection for them, the second death holds no power but they will be priests of God and Christ and will reign with him a thousand years. All right, what is all this? Let's do some identification. You've got a first resurrection, you've got a second resurrection. You've got a first death, you got a second death. What's the first resurrection? Well, John tells us, a resurrection of souls. Second resurrection is the bodily resurrection. When Jesus returns, soul, spirit, reunited with body. The second death, we know later on in Revelation chapter 20, is when everybody's thrown into the lake of fire with Satan. That's the second death. So what's the first death? Spiritual death. So you remember um, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. God said, Genesis 2, 17, From the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Well, they ate from it, didn't they? Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Eve, very much. But when they ate from it, they didn't die physically. Now, they died eventually, physically, but they did die. I mean, Adam went on, he lived 800 years plus. We know that after that. They died spiritually. You know that. We know that. Sin causes spiritual death. Same for us when we commit and committed sin. Ephesians 2.1, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. Thankfully, through the gospel, our spirits and souls can be redeemed and we can experience a spiritual resurrection. Same chapter, Ephesians 2, 4. Because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. There's a a resurrection for you. Even when we were dead in transgressions, God raised us up with Christ. Resurrection. And seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. What did John say in Revelation? These souls are seated on thrones. Paul says, through our spiritual resurrection, in a spiritual sense, we are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. So when we're saved, we experience a spiritual resurrection. That happens when we're baptized. Colossians 2.12, Having been buried with Christ in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith and the working of God, who raised him from the dead, when you were dead in your sins, God made you alive with Christ. Well, you know, this is what happens when you're baptized. You got the immersion in water and the resurrection up out of the water. That's what we see. That's what's happening physically. Spiritually, what happens is in the mind of God, God is making us spiritually alive. He's resurrecting our spirits. The resurrection of the soul. So that's what happens when we are baptized. And then we're royal priests. 1 Peter 2, 9. You are royal priests. We're spiritual sins. We're kings and queens. We're priests of Christ. So what I'm saying is, this millennial, millennial time, thousand years—we'll get to more of that in the next one. But where God reigns, God is reigning right now. The the church is the kingdom of God. Jesus said, "The kingdom is within you." He's reigning in us, in our hearts. I like to pray this every morning when I take my walk around the neighborhood, and I you know, maybe you do too. Pray through the Lord's prayer. Lord, I set apart Christ as Lord in my heart. The kingdom is within me. You, you be the king of my life. Okay, so He's reigning. Uh, in John chapter 11, Jesus resurrected Lazarus from the dead. Remember that? Lazarus buried, been there for three days. His body had already been decomposing. He smelled and just got the linens wrapped around him. And Jesus stood outside the mouth of the cave where he'd been buried and said, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus, you know, it's like the mummy. Lazarus stands up and he waddles out, I guess. It's, it's a great, great account, story to happen. Uh, what if, though? I always wonder, what if? What if Lazarus, back there in the cave, instead of just coming out, Jesus said, Lazarus, come out. Lazarus had said, eh, do I have to? <laughs> do I, can I just follow you from in here? I mean, I smell. I don't look that good. I'm, not, I'm not dressed right. My parents were never resurrected. It's, I just feel funny about the whole thing. It's embarrassing. No, that would be ridiculous. And yet, Jesus Jesus said, repent and be baptized, every one of you. you know, he, was, he was baptized believes and is baptized, will be saved. Jesus calls us to be baptized, experience the spiritual resurrection. The apostles teach that. And we just come up with excuses. Do I have to? Really? Parents didn't do that? Can I just follow Jesus without doing that? Remember what John says in Revelation. He who experiences the first resurrection, the second death, this lake of fire, has no power over him. My only application here is, I mean, if you've been, believed and repented, been baptized, praise God. Thank you, God, for making that available to us. And if you haven't, what are you waiting for? The second coming? That will be too late, you know? Let's make sure we get this taken care of. So, the end game has begun because Satan is bound, because the first resurrection has occurred. And then third reason, I believe this, is because the millennium is now. The millennium is now, Revelation chapter 20, verse 4. And then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and did not receive the mark on their forehead and on their hand. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now, again, a thousand years is a millennium. That's what it means. This is figurative, just like so many other symbols in the Bible. Don't think literal thousand years. It's symbolic. The psalmist said, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. I mean, God owns that much cattle and no more? No, the psalmist is just saying he owns all the cattle. He owns all the hills, a thousand. So, so to the Hebrews, the symbol for completeness and fullness was a cube. So uh, 10, the, 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 the digits, the fundamental basis of mathematics, cube, 10 times 10 times 10 is a thousand. Likewise, the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and the temple is a cube a perfect cube. 12 cubits by 12 cubits by 12 cubits, 144,000 cubits. You know, it's, that's their complete fullness. That's what that symbolizes. So, the millennium, if I understand what the Bible is teaching, you know, a lot of different interpretations on that, and that's fine. If I understand what the Bible teaches, we're just talking about this thousand years, the thousand-year reign of Christ during the Christian era. Every Christian that's ever been born, including us, has been born during the millennial reign of Christ. Christ is reigning right now, and we are reigning with him. What's the first gospel sermon? Well, preached by Peter on the day of Pentecost, recorded in Acts chapter 2. And in that sermon, Peter said, quotes Joel, and he said, This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel, is Acts chapter 2, verse 16. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people." Okay, the last days. So, what is Peter saying? Now, this is by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is Peter's, this is the Holy Spirit telling us what Joel was talking about when he said, in the last days. Peter says, all this that you see, meaning the, the, the sound of the mighty rushing wind, the tongues of fire over the heads of the apostles, the, the preaching in, in languages they had not studied. Here, God is pouring out his spirit. When you're baptized, anybody who wants to can receive the spirit of God. Peter says, this Is that this, what what Joel prophesied, is what you're seeing right here. It's happening right now in the last days. Doesn't that mean that the last days began right then? They were in the last day, in these last days, and have continued right up to now. Are we in the last days? Yes, we have been for the last 2,000 plus years. Are we in the millennium? Yes. We have been in the millennial kingdom of God for the last 2,000 years. That means Christ is reigning and we are reigning with him. Now, here's the thing. Here's an application for you. We don't always feel like we're reigning with Christ. Sometimes we feel like it's raining on us. We're getting that monkey beat down. We got all these disasters in our lives. Things aren't working out, all these obstacles we feel that way. We feel uh, like losers sometimes. So this becomes a faith issue. This becomes a reorientation. We want to we have the, pers- the heavenly perspective on who and what we are. This is what, It's good about the Bible and the Word of God. It's why there's a blessing in Revel- to read Revelation or hear it taught. Somebody has said, Revelation calls us to see what is going on above so we can navigate what's going on below. If you read the one-year Bible for your devotions, I know a lot of you do. I do. We've been in the book of Judges for Old Testament reading this past week. Judges chapter 6, you read about Gideon. Gideon was down threshing wheat in the bottom of a wine press. It's in a deep hole. It's normally not where you would thresh wheat. But this was during an era of the Israelite nation when all the enemy nations were just oppressing them. And uh, Gideon was basically hiding in this hole, threshing the wheat, so the Midianites wouldn't come and steal his wheat from him. You know, he didn't want the bully to come and take his lunch. So he's hiding in a hole. And the angel of the Lord appears to Gideon and said, Hello there, mighty warrior. And I can just visualize Gideon looking over his shoulder. Mighty warrior, are you talking to me? And the angel said, Yeah. He says, Gideon, I want you to raise up an army and throw off the oppression of the Midianites. And Gideon says, You've got to be kidding. I mean, my clan is the least in all this tribe of Manasseh. I'm in the tribe of Manasseh. My clan's the least, and I'm the least in my tribe. I'm a nobody. I'm just trying to not draw attention to myself, not make eye contact with anybody down in this hall. And the angel of the Lord, in the Old Testament, probably the angel of the Lord is a theophany. It's a physical manifestation of God. God says to Gideon, I'm going to go with you. I will be with you. And that makes all the difference. So Gideon raised up that army and threw off the oppression of the Midianites and had 20 years of freedom. For change. And in chapter 7, after they've been fighting, fighting and beating the Midianites, two kings were captured and they were they were brought before Gideon, and Gideon asked these two captured kings. He said, "Now, the people you've been fighting against, what did they look like?" And the king said, the kings answered, "They looked like you. Each one looked like the son of a king." Within the space of a short amount of time, because of a changed perspective, Gideon went from feeling like a loser, the least, smallest, most insignificant person in his entire family, to carrying himself like a king. And his family all looked the same way. And the Israelites all carried themselves the same way. These kings said, man, we're fighting against an army of royalty. So what I'm saying is how we view ourselves and think about ourselves makes all the difference in how we carry ourselves. We are priests, we're royalty, you're, you're princes and princesses and sons and daughters of the king. We are reigning over Satan even now. Believe that. Act it out, and it can make all the difference. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close here with a quote from Russell Boatman, wrote one of these commentaries that I recommended. He writes, Having been given the victory over the world, the flesh, and the devil, and having been made an elect race, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people for God's own possession, the light of the world, the salt of the earth, the pillar and ground of the truth, even temples of the Holy Spirit, a habitation of God in the Spirit, we are here and now, reigning with Christ in His true millennial kingdom. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, uh, you say there's a blessing for those who read Revelation and hear Revelation. We pray today that we can be blessed knowing the yes, the end game has begun for all these good reasons, because Satan is bound, because we have experienced The first resurrection, so the second death, has no power over any Christian in this room. And the millennial reign of Christ is happening, even now. And we are kings and queens and priests reigning with Him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.